Welcome to the Sense Making in a Changing World podcast, where we explore the kind of thinking we need to navigate a positive way forward. I'm your host, Maura Gamble, permaculture educator and global ambassador, filmmaker, eco-villager, food forester, mother, practivist, and all-round lover of thinking, communicating, and acting regeneratively. For a long time, it's been clear to me that to shift trajectory to a thriving one-planet way of life, we first need to shift our thinking. The way we perceive ourselves in relation to nature, self, and community is the core. So this is true now more than ever, and even the way change is changing is changing. Unprecedented changes are happening all around us at a rapid pace. So how do we make sense of this? To know which way to turn, to know what action to focus on, so our efforts are worthwhile and nourishing and are working towards resilience, regeneration and reconnection. What better way to make sense than to join together with others in open, generative conversation? In this podcast, I'll share conversations with my friends and colleagues, people who inspire and challenge me in their ways of thinking, connecting and acting. These wonderful people are thinkers, doers, activists, scholars, writers, leaders, farmers, educators, people whose work informs permaculture and spark the imagination of what a post-COVID, climate-resilient, socially just future could look like. Their ideas and projects help us to make sense in this changing world, to compost and digest the ideas, and to nurture the fertile ground for new ideas, connections and actions. Together we'll open up conversations in the world of permaculture design, regenerative thinking, community action, earth repair, eco-literacy and much more. I can't wait to share these conversations with you. Over the last three decades of personally making sense of the multiple crises we face, I always return to the practical and positive world of permaculture with its ethics of earth care, people care and fair share. I've seen firsthand how adaptable and responsive it can be in all contexts, from urban to rural, from refugee camps to suburbs. It helps people make sense of what's happening around them and to learn accessible design tools to shape their habitat positively and to contribute to cultural and ecological regeneration. This is why I've created the Permaculture Educators Program, to help thousands of people to become permaculture teachers everywhere through an interactive online dual certificate of permaculture design and teaching. We sponsor global perma-youth programs, women's self-help groups in the global south, and teens in refugee camps. So anyway, this podcast is sponsored by the Permaculture Education Institute and our Permaculture Educators Program. If you'd like to find more about permaculture, I've created a four-part permaculture video series to explain what permaculture is, and and also how you can make it your livelihood as well as your way of life. We'd love to invite you to join our wonderfully inspiring, friendly and supportive global learning community. So I welcome you to share each of these conversations, and I'd also like to suggest you create a local conversation circle to explore the ideas shared in each show and discuss together how this makes sense in your local community and environment. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I meet and speak with you today, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. In this episode of Sense Making in a Changing World, it's my great pleasure to welcome to the show Jane Milburn, a great friend of mine. Jane presents a compelling case for why we need to change the way we dress. She's the founder and creative force behind Textile Beat. She champions slow clothing. She's written a book about this topic too. She loves natural fibres and and upcycling. So slow clothing is all really about finding meaning in what we wear. And she says slow clothing is a creative, ethical and meaningful way 
of dressing that engages our head, heart and hands. Jane talks about ways of protecting and regenerating the planet through this lens of slow clothing. It's more than just wearing natural clothes. She has a whole slow clothing philosophy and a slow clothing manifesto. And she talks about how secondhand is the new organic and and mending is good for the soul. So Jane offers us a beautiful, everyday, practical philosophy, accessible to everyone everywhere, that brings us to wholeness through living more simply, creatively and fairly. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy this conversation today with Jane Milburn. Well, thank you for joining me today on the show, Jane. It's just such a pleasure. And I, so I I thought like you've um, been a a Churchill scholar this year, which has been, has been a bit disrupted. And I thought we could talk about that in a a minute because that's an, an amazing thing that you've been doing. But I wanted to just begin with this journey of how does one move from being an agricultural scientist to a slow clothing champion and sustainability consultant? What what happened there and what, what what is slow clothing and what drew you into that whole world? Uh, well, of course, probably easiest just to start at the beginning. I grew up on a sheep farm in New Zealand and that's where I came to love wool, natural fibres, and uh, we, we came to Australia. I did my secondary school and university here and studied agricultural science. We'd had a dairy farm in between as well and so that led me to study agriculture but I realised I wasn't actually a scientist per se and so I did rural journalism that's you know the communication so my first job was with the ABC as a rural reporter and I was in Victoria and that's sheep country as well so all through my journey I've had these natural fibres and then I came to Queensland got married um, had three children and, and did um Rural communications jobs, worked with newspapers, the Career Mail, Country Life, um, and then for farm groups, and I did advocacy work for farm groups, and that was probably where I, um, you know, and that's communicating a message around what's important to them. One of the main ones I did was Save the Aussie Banana for the Australian Banana Growers Council, and that was all about um, a pest and disease you know, a, a rejection of imports on the basis of pest and diseases. So, you know, over time, I when my third, our third child finished school, it was it was just a little bit of transition. I had done a leadership program, the Australian Rural Leadership Program, and that really helped me understand what my values were, what was important to me, and we're taught to step up and lead wherever we see it's necessary. So when Lily, the third child, had finished school, it was kind of like, right, uh, you know, it's a little bit more my time again now. I don't need to be um, doing doing things I I don't want to be doing. And so it was really then a search around meaning and purpose for the next phase. And it coincided when I was doing the second part of my leadership training um, the Rana Plaza factory collapsed in 2013 in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. And we really had this window into um, where all the cheap clothes that we'd just sort of been, uh, you know, enjoying the, this arrival of these gifts and not having to worry about clothing. Because also through my career, I guess I've been following the food story and 
know, how we became aware of where our food came from and wanting to grow more and wanting to have local. So I realised, you know, this combination of things that, um, you know, well, the clothing story was missing in there, that we'd just taken this for granted, this flow of clothing, and then we realised that that's why it's so affordable and we don't have to worry about it because it's basically being made by people in other countries, um, you know, in, in um, unsafe workplaces. So that piqued my awareness. I was already on the natural fibre journey and I'd set up Textile Beat, but that really cemented the fact that, you know, there's a message here. And the other thing that I had been observing is the change in the fibres and that was, whilst I'm concerned about the ethics, it was really the natural fibres that I was honing back in on and I started doing some research around, you know, you'd see that most of the clothes were synthetic and then it was only when I found some information that I cobbled together from the FAO and from World Fibre Reports that you could see that within a decade we'd gone from having half natural fibres, half synthetic in our clothing to basically two-thirds synthetic. And synthetic fibres are actually plastic fibres. You know, they are derived from fossil fuels and they're very uh, affordable and easy to make, much easier than growing a crop and going through all these processes. So, um, but the, the problem with the synthetic fibres that um, Dr Mark Brown's research identified was that they shed microplastic. They're plastic, they're shedding microplastic particles. And every time you wash a synthetic garment, it can shed up to 2,000 microplastic particles. So it's it's one of the biggest pollutants in our ocean is our synthetic clothes. I just um, heard the other day that, you know, it's not just in the sort of the surface areas and near the coast. They've found them three kilometres deep. Wow. And, just, and thick layers of this embedded that just settles down. Yes, and so, yes. And, and you see, often there's a criticism of natural fibres that, well, yes, they shed as well. They do shed, but they're shedding biodegradable material. But, you know, it may settle into layers, it may not. If it's just out there, it, it just goes back into nitrogen, carbon, carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, and is useful, it returns, whereas the, the plastic is there forever and so this was something that really wasn't common. It's kind of common knowledge now, but back then it wasn't common knowledge. And so this has been the journey of my work to talk about these things and, and also the huge waste of clothing as it became more affordable. And there's two factors, the change in the fibres to the synthetics and then the um, the modern-day slavery, those things increase the consumption two to four times in places like Australia. Mm-hmm. And we are the second largest consumer of clothing after North America. And then that leads to waste and pollution as we just sort of throw things away because they're not worth, you know, we think they're not worth mending, you know, if they're cheap and nasty, we don't, you know, we've had enough of them. And the other thing is there's a loss of skills and knowledge. So we, we've forgotten how to mend. We've forgotten how to value our clothes. We're not buying quality pieces that might last a long time, you know, investment pieces. So I, I think we have had a huge shift in the last five years where we've suddenly woken up to what's going on with our clothes. And, um, yeah, I guess that's sort of, I feel I've, I've written a book in the meantime, you know, Slow Clothing was sort of a consolidation of the work that I've done. And 
it's really just um, a simple narrative about our clothes. It's not about fashion in any sense um, because the problem I feel with talking about fashion is by definition that's ever-changing. You know, it's what's in fashion and what's out of fashion and therefore we, we throw things away. So I talk about slow clothing but slow fashion has also become a thing over this time where we're becoming aware that natural fibres are much more comfortable to wear and when you have natural fibre clothes, you're not having to wash them as much as the synthetics. And, you know, when you think about the fact that that, that means, um, you know, the shedding as well as the use of resources in, in the simple act of washing your clothes. So natural fibres, you don't need to wash as much and they don't smell. And, you know, there's just so many things to recommend them. But, of course, there is a downside as well. Um, we hear a lot about the water used in cotton production. And, yes, it does use water, but if you try and grow tomatoes, as I was during the COVID lockdown, you know, you realise how much that water takes water. So everything uses water. And the main thing we can do is, particularly with cotton garments, is wear them until they wear out. And then, you know, we just have to accept that. Uh, a wool garments in the winter, you know, you, you can almost wear a woolen jumper all winter without washing it, you know. Unless it smells or looks dirty, hello, it doesn't need washing. That's my, that's the view I've arrived at anyway. I think this is I think this is brilliant because we got to the point where, you know, you wear it once, you wash it, wear it once and wash it. And I remember um, at home when growing up, my mum would spot clean all the time yeah. and she was very conscious about that and she would, and then when she, if she couldn't spot clean, she would actually hand wash most of her stuff and, and I yeah. asked her, well, I said, you've got a washing machine. What are you doing? And she would say, well, you know, my clothes will last much yes. longer. And yeah. I still yeah. see her wearing today some of the clothes that I saw when I, she was, when I was growing up. And I yeah. had some of her woolen garments that she had when she was half my age. And now my daughter's wearing them. There's something yeah. even about the quality of the, oh, it's the material is, is so different yes. now even. Yes, 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 that's right. And so treasuring those things and valuing them is something we are returning to, whereas for a while we went through this trend, you know, all the marketing, all wear this, this is the latest colour, the latest hemline. But, you know, really we're better having one quality thing than five cheaper things. And that's part of my slow clothing manifesto. You know, as part of this process I came up, Personally, I, I do a lot of spot cleaning as well. And just while we're on that, the other thing I do is sometimes I find, you know how the, the co- inside of the collars are the parts that get dirty and perhaps under the arms, you know, where it's a bit closer to your body. Although I've started wearing much looser clothes, which is another strategy. If they don't, they're not clinging and carrying on, you know, you don't have to wash them as much either and just air them at, or hang them in the shower when you're washing, that freshens them up. So all those sort of strategies are great, but um, for my in the 2014 year, I did a whole year of upcycling where I was reusing and sewing, and that was a deliberate thing. I remember going on ABC Radio at the end of 2013 and saying I was going to do a whole year of you know using what I had, thrifting perhaps, but not too much of that, and mainly and sewing. And um, you know, it felt a bit sort of as if I was putting myself out on a plank there. But 
Uh, I, I think, you know, you need to speak your own truth and that's really what I was doing all my life. You know, it's, I've sort of accelerated perhaps a little, you know, a little more conscious now in terms of almost everything I wear, I've got my own energy in and that I've made it or upcycled it. Um, but I realised that a lot of people, you know, not everybody wants to do that. So that's where I came up with the slow clothing manifesto of actions and choices that we have. And, you know, the first one is thinking more. And then the second, this is just the order I've put them in, is natural fibres, treasuring natural fibres. And quality, that's what you mentioned before. You know, quality is really important to think about that. And sometimes we feel, oh, to hand over that amount of money for one thing. But you know, when you buy quality, it lasts forever, you know, almost lasts forever. And then local, supporting local where we can because a lot of things, you know, and the textile supply chain is quite complex. There's lots of different stages and sometimes things, you know, the fibre or the clothing can travel around the world, you know, in, in its, you know, to get to you. It can go offshore, back again, sometimes even offshore again, you know, like, couple of different countries on the way so supporting local makers where we can is is a useful thing as well and just having a few clothes like having less of better quality is a good thing but I'm not very good at being a minimalist <laughs> I like to have variety so I get a fail on that one but um, uh, I I think I think that's where I do quite well I just have a couple of basic tops like everyone always sees me wearing wearing black like yeah. because because I do a lot of gardening and I have little kids, like I always got stuff all over me. So I figured, all right, I'll just stay straight black on the top and then I make all my skirts. And I just have three or four wrap skirts and they just go over anything. And I've been into yeah. Westminster Palace. <laughs> I've been everywhere in the yeah. same clothes. I just kind of like, you know, throw a scarf around or something and that dresses it up or I just hook it up and I'm out in the garden or on my bike. It's the same same thing. I have three or four skirts, three or four tops, that's it. And it's, so you're doing slow clothing or, you know, so you are easy. doing all this. You are living all this just mm-hmm. by being who you are, really. And mm-hmm. I think the permaculture life really reflects that because you want simple, easy, comfortable, easy care, flexible, all those things. So um, and the, the rest of the 10 actions are caring for things, yeah. baking where you can, and I know you've bought fabric and, you know, had it made or, you know, like your skirts or the lovely African fabrics and things, and um, so make revive, which is vintage and thrifting and using grandma's clothes and adapting, it, which is where you get a bit, might get the scissors out, um, you know, sometimes cutting off a sleeve the bottom of the sleeve, you know, if it's too tight or it's got shabby at the end, just chop it off and and you can just hand stitch it up. And sometimes also the length of a dress or a skirt can really make a difference where it's sitting on your body. Um, so that's adapting things to work for yourself. And you can also use um, natural, you know, dyeing techniques as well, things like that. It's a great way to adapt. And then the last one is salvaging where we use what we can and, you know, I do a lot of T-shirt yarn um, and um, things like that uh, where you, you're sort of um, doing your own downcycling and turning it into something else. It's so tell us a bit, can you tell us a bit, so there's upcycling and downcycling. So can you just define and describe those a bit for us? Uh, upcycling is where you are sort of adding value 
either, you know, environment, you know, from a sustainable perspective or creative, you know, you want to make it look different. So you're getting a resource that's to hand and um, it can go two ways. It can go off to landfill or, you know, be used as a rag and chucked, you know, once and chucked out or it can be upcycled. For example, what I'm wearing today, which you probably can't really see, but I, I can send you a photo, but this is a table. I've made this dress out of a tablecloth. And um, so we don't use these tablecloths anymore, you know, beautiful embroidered ones. So I've just turned this into a loose dress just by making oh, it's a little bit complicated. It's a technique called um, subtraction cutting where I've cut out a hole for neck and sleeves and I originally turned the tablecloth into folded, you know, into a rectangular shape, which is a pillowcase. If you imagine a big pillowcase and then you cut a neck and sleeves. And this this is the leftover bit um, from the the rectangle. I didn't want it to be too wide, if you know what I mean. So I cut a piece off the side and I've just used this as a bit of a scarf around, oh, around my neck and just to cover my shoulders and my arms. So, I mean, it's hard to talk about that, um, but... It's, I've used I've used a tablecloth that was sitting in the cupboard, not doing anything. I wouldn't wear, you know, you wouldn't use it for food because, the, you know, when things get spilt on it, it, it wrecks it, you know. So I've turned it into a garment and that's what that's what upcycling is, where you change something for the better in your mind and, you know, you keep wearing it, whereas the downcycling is just it's what happens with aluminium cans, you know, they're squashed and they go off again. And we are doing a bit of um, this talk of recycling textiles. Um, there's a group called Block Techs in Australia who are looking to extract the fibres and have them respun again down the track. But that industrial upcycling, downcycling, and then upcycling is it's a bit of a way away. So yeah, I, it's I, just thinking I, maybe about downcycling is my composting of my clothes. It's like finished, finished with my clothes. Like this one is almost finished. It's got so many holes. I don't know if you can yeah. see it. So many holes in it. And uh, it's got, I think it's, most people don't notice the holes because there's patterns. Well, that would be holy. You can slice that off and turn I know, it I can slice and I can stitch and I can put a liner in. I do all these sorts of things. But then when yeah. they finally, finally ripped and had it, then um, they pop, I pop them into the compost or the yeah. worm farm. Yeah. And because yeah, of the natural fibres, and then they grow again. And that's that's the wonderful thing about having natural fibres. You can actually confidently do that, even if it takes a little while. But I've done a couple of experiments with um, the different fibres. Um, in my backyard, I had things, little swatches buried for 11 months and the natural fibres almost completely disappeared in that time except for silk. And the synthetics were very visible, like not, not much change at all there. They just looked like they'd had a bit of a hard hard time for a while. But if I'd washed them, which I didn't do, but, you know, they would they would live on, which, you know, there's a benefit to that. And I have learned that with swimwear that synthetics are the go. I was wearing wool for a while and I loved wearing um wool undies and, and just a singlet and, and um, little um, boy leg pants. Um, and I love swimming in it, but it didn't have the longevity. I only got a few months' worth of 
swimming out of it. So I've had to return to synthetics there. So they do have some benefit, but we just don't need it all to be that. Mm. Um, and I think that's where your ethic um, within your manifesto of care comes in. So, you know, if you, if you have your synthetic um, bathers, then you make sure that you wash them out and you care for them so that they last as long as possible instead of just leaving yes. that chlorine in them or whatever. And yes, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yes. Anyway, it's um it's a bit of an adventure, but I think just focusing on our clothes. The other thing is you have to invest a bit of time, and a lot of people don't necessarily want to invest time or have time. You know, there's certainly busy phases in your life. Um, and you're probably in it in a way more, right? You've got young children, but, um, you know, I definitely find um, that I've got more time available now because I can focus on these things. So I think there's ages and stages. But, yeah. uh, and where did, you, where did you learn how to sew? I think sometimes also it's the they're not quite knowing where to start, we're not having the skills. I mean, I'm so thankful when I was, I think I was, my mum always sewed. She always made clothes and I, I grew up watching her make clothes and if something happened, she'd say, oh, give it to me and she'd mend it and, yes. and um, you know, that still goes on. <laughs> Whenever I go down, she's got anything to mend. When I was 16, my, my birthday present was a sewing machine and a set of lessons with the seamstress down the road. So she taught me how to make patterns and how to read patterns and how to to do you know collars and buttons and things that my mum wasn't as confident about she just does simple clothing which is brilliant and actually what I mostly do but I thought that was such a looking back on it now it was the most brilliant gift and it reminds me of this um this quote that I read in your book was give someone a shirt and their clothes for a day teach someone to sew and their clothes for a lifetime it's kind of like that give someone a fish you know that sort of quote isn't it and and it's beautiful because I I felt so liberated by that as I was growing up and really wanted to be fashionable when I was in my late teens. I could make whatever I wanted to. I could mm. scan in secondhand shops, pick up stuff, redesign it how I wanted to, make whatever I wanted to. I'd look up and down the high street of of you know down in Chapel Street in Melbourne and look to see what all the designers were doing. I'd go home and whip it up myself, and I would. I felt so capable that I yeah. didn't have to spend an enormous amount of money, but I could still feel good that I could make my own stuff. And, and now I'm done more pragmatic, but it, yeah. was a, it was a great skill to have all throughout my life, oh, I think. Yes, and and look, that that is wonderful and I really understand because that's for me as well. My mother was actually a home economics teacher. Oh, okay. Um, but she didn't, like I I grew up still seeing her sew and Grandma and Nana lived on the farm with us. Um but um, I really feel as if I'm a bit self-taught. Like we, you know, you can get the basics and sometimes you underestimate how much you know. But I've really, I could, I could say that I've really, you teach yourself. Yeah. You teach yourself by doing um, and not trying to be overly ambitious. Uh, just start with simple things and then you can work up and you learn how the, how textiles behave, how the different textiles behave and things. So it's just play, I, I you're saying. It, it is play. It is, yeah. And actually, in oh, your book, like, was what I really love about your book too is that I've got, got it here. It's the same oh, as your great. poster there. Um, <laughs> that, that you actually show a whole lot of techniques of different 
you know, different ways of, of sewing, which is so yeah. brilliant, so yeah. handy. Hand stitching, hand stitching you can do a lot with and I think that is definitely a place to start. If people don't have any skills, just get a needle and thread um, and, you know, I, I don't just use ordinary cotton. Usually I use crochet cotton and, you know, threads that are slightly bigger. And um, you can do some lovely decorative work. And I mentioned before about cutting off a sleeve. And you can just iron it, turn it up twice, and then just do a couple of rows of hand stitching yeah, and, and use that hand washing technique, you know, instead of putting it through the machine. Or if you do feel you want to put it in the machine, at least put it in a laundry bag so it doesn't get tossed around too much. Um, but um, that's the place to start is hand stitching. Or very simple sewing, and you only need a simple sewing machine. You, yes, you can have the fancy overlocker and all that, but really, you only need a simple sewing machine. And there's some great simple patterns now. And um, Peppermint Magazine, for example, has a whole lot of free patterns on their website, and they're relatively simple ones for people for starting out. And um, and you can um, use. If, if you're really a beginner, then maybe going to the op shop and getting some sheets is a great place to start, you know, because there's a lot of top gigs lying around, you know, and you can get something that you vaguely like, but have a play and a practice with that. And the investment of time in the learning is actually, um, you know, it pays off. As you say, you know, you've got the skills and, and we're of a slightly older generation too, Morag. I think that makes a difference and it makes me a little sad, this whole fast fashion, the availability of clothing. People don't, or younger people, they just don't appreciate the time, effort and the resources and the skill that go into it. And so sometimes when they try to do something, they you know, they don't sort of realise that, um, oh, you know, you can't just magic it up in half an hour. Some things you can, like the wraparound skirts and that yeah. sort of thing. Pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, but it's pretty easy. Straightforward. Yeah. So, but I think one of the things sometimes it can be overwhelming. It's a little bit, you know, like permaculture when you're starting out. You think, oh, I just want to have someone to show me what, you know, I want to see it in action. I want to see how people are doing it. What's, what are you doing in your garden? And come and have a look at a community garden. But with sewing also, to, and it's it's kind of a very old tradition really, isn't it, that you, you get people together in, I don't know about COVID, but, uh, you have sewing circles where people come together. Do you want to tell us a bit about how that works and how that's been? Yeah, well, um, it's interesting because, um, you know, it is coming back and there's, there's something really quite lovely about working um, working with other women and talking about and problem solving. I think the boomerang bag groups that are springing up are a great place to see uh, and there's always... There's always jobs for people who can't sew and that is a place, not that they necessarily teach you sewing, but you certainly see the techniques and can teach yourself there. You know, you, you know the machines are often there to use. There's also quite a lot of maker spaces emerging as well. Um, and, you know, like I do slow clothing workshops and some are just for beginners. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's not really a place to learn to sew um because it's it's a bit more complex like it's if we're using sewing machines it's great if people have got the basics mm. of knowing what's going to happen you know and how to go around corners and 
how to make things fit. You know, that's often what you're doing in upcycling. But I just think it, it's a bit like like cooking is probably easier to learn. Um, and I think that's why often the clothing is sort of left out because it's a little more complicated. It's not easy. But I, I think there's heaps of um, um, YouTube tutorials and that sort of thing as well, which are quite useful to watch. And I think it is that just starting, it's just have a go um, and be prepared to have to unpick sometimes. Yeah, uh, Unpicker is my favourite tool. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, sort of, I, I try, I try not, but you've actually sometimes you've just got to know it would be much better if I unpick that. And it's also knowing when you're heading off track, you know, how you sometimes <laughs> think, I'll just keep going, it'll fix itself. And it never does, so you're better off just I just have this, this memory embedded in my brain of like when I was first down at the, the seamstress's um, studio and and we had this pattern and I thought, okay, the first thing I'll do, I'll make myself a pair dance. And so I, I got there and I had them all down and I ended up with like two tunnels. There's like no way I could get in it. Unpick, unpick, unpick. Yeah, have to re. And it's just that three D spatial awareness. And and you know, once you do it a few times, like I say, you play, you kind of get into it. But I was you have to invest. You have to invest time, don't you? Yeah. I, I think that's the thing. And, and sit. If you um, have children, and if you can sew, and you have children to sit with them, or grandchildren to sit with them mm-hmm. and sew around. It's like, like you, you, you sew your. Your mother, yeah. and grandmother, yes. doing that. Yes. I saw my mother doing doing that, and so it was just a normal, natural thing. And whether I was actually doing it next to her, I was still noticing. It was yeah. it was kind of I was absorbing it somehow. Yes, it's that can't be what you can't see. So mm-hmm. when you see it, you realise it's possible. Um, I remember when I in, in the early days when I was starting doing this work, a young person said to me, oh, you mean you can make clothes, you know? You mean you can make them? And I just, I think this girl just didn't sort of realise But it's not just um, women who sew. That was the point that I was making. I think men do as well. And I know um, my eldest son is the one that does the sewing and he's, he's got a couple of little children now and he's often the one that, that will um, use the machine and do things. Um, and also... With my daughter Lily, when she was going to the um, music festivals like Splendor and that, she wanted some crocheted shorts. So we sat down and made them together. And you know, yeah. she so I, I think it's beholden on us with the skills to be trying to pass them on and, and help people understand what's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, also, than- and why that bigger picture? I think that's something that really, you know, about your work is it. It's about learning these skills, but there's a really deep reason why you're doing it because actually it's shifting the way we think about clothing, shifts the way that we think about everything that's around us because it's that relational thing. It's a philosophy, isn't it? And once you start with one thing, it's like when you think about the philosophy of gardening, it infiltrates into how then you eat and how then you relate with the local farm or the soil or the natural areas around you. It's a similar sort of thing. It begins in one spot where you're passionate, and then just kind of ripples through your through your life. So, there's two questions I wanted to ask you. Um, one was about um, you've just finished a permaculture design course down at Northeast Street City Farm, and how how do you then maybe describe 
slow clothing through a permaculture lens? Has it shifted how you see things at all? And then the second, where we go after that, I was wondering if we could talk a bit more about some of the stories that you've heard from the people that you've been talking with in um, your Churchill Fellowship. So mm-hmm. we just start with the permaculture yes, lens. For- permaculture. Um, through my work in rural reporting, you know, I've been aware of permaculture for a long time. And um, I did a story with uh, the Sunday Mail with Robin Playfield, who's up near where you are, when she had her book, um, Have Your Permaculture and Eat It Too, I think it is. Um, And um, so I'd always been aware of permaculture. And I think the thing about doing the design course, it it just fully made me realise that what I'm doing, I could have called it permaculture clothes, you Mm -hmm. know, like, really, it's all about that because it's it's natural, it's regenerative, um, it's it's resilient when you you know using what you've got to hand and all that kind of thing. So good care, people care, fair care. It's all the ethics embedded within it so beautifully. It's very much about ethics. Um, it's where I've come to and and, and realizing. So it was it was actually really affirming to do the permaculture course and. And I just loved the, the holistic nature of it. It just put, brings everything into perspective. And I do feel, because we, you know, I, I do feel that there's more place for conversations about clothing within permaculture because it was kind of like the missing narrative. And that's why I guess I spoke up because I felt the permaculture, uh, the um, fashion narrative wasn't addressing these ethical concerns. Mm-hmm. And then I feel there's a little bit of potential for permaculture to have a conversation about clothes as well. So, and that really is the, the slow clothing conversation. So within so the zone zero, I think, within the zone zero, like what's going on inside the house, you know, I yeah. think we kind of bring it into that and sort yes. of use that as the platform. And But I also like to connect it in with the zone Zone one, the mm-hmm. kitchen gown, the compost area, like thinking about how. Definitely. And yes. then also you know, further out too with the community, uh, like yes. you were saying, linking in with our hay sport, your local economy, um, yeah. you know, hay sporting, yeah, the local shops, the local makers, all, all of that kind of thing. And thinking about the impacts of the dyes, so thinking about are yes. we impacting the natural area, the, the wilderness zone, the zone five, you know, yes. are we, you know, all of these things. Yeah. And, and, and growing your own diet. Growing your own diet. Yeah, like because I've, I've got some indigo fera australis growing, it's kind of it's it's having a bit of a battle. I think it'll be a long time before I get enough vegetative matter to even the vegetables, food. like collecting your avocado oh, pits, onion pits, yes, and avocado pits, turmeric, all those yeah. things. You can, your vegetable garden can be your cloister. You know, actually yeah. finding though the natural undyed fabric that you can actually use is sometimes a challenge you know like actually yes. sourcing that that um the raw material yes one yes. thing to make more accessible like, um, there is um full circle fibers is an australian cotton um that's grown on a farm at st george um one part of the process does have to go offshore um to Manchester to be spun and come back here. But all we need is investment in Australia and we can have it fully local. And I do believe that will come in time. So what you're saying, we can, we're growing it? We, we're growing it. Yeah, yeah. But the only thing we can't do is spin, spin. it. Spin, yeah. And um, so, but I, I think that will change. I did um, 
hear someone from the cotton industry speaking and he said it wasn't it wasn't no longer the cost of labor that was an issue it's actually the cost of electricity in Australia that's oh. stopping it happening here so um you know I think it's only a matter of time and and requests like people yeah. need to be asking for Australian fiber and we mainly only grow the cotton um alpaca wool as well and and this potential for local wool spinning um to happen here so we keep all that on shore as well you know this obviously you know the COVID year was such a year of disruption I think it really raised our awareness of lots of different things and the, the supply chain where our clothing and resources come from was a big awareness but personally um I had my Churchill Fellowship travel ready all ready to rock and roll that was I was going to the northern hemisphere visiting five you know five the US the UK Japan and that um it's just deferred for now but I was going to be looking at how hands-on upcycling can reduce textile waste and enhance well-being so I I continued I did a virtual Churchill uh where I started you know doing interviews with these people um, that I was going to be meeting face-to-face. And I've still got more of that to do, but it's really not quite the same as meeting face-to-face. So I think I've, what I've done is sort of evolve and adapt the work and I'm, I'm broadening it out too. I guess that's the benefit of doing the permaculture course because I realise, you know, this is about skills for living. You know, it's simple living, it's knowing you know, we're, we're so marketed to and so many things are designed for us now that we can go out and buy anything our little heart desires, but that's not actually very personally satisfying. And I think when you get to a certain stage in life, you realise that. And I think I've got a duty of care to try and educate people around what are the simple things, what are the important things to be doing in life. And so... I'm working with a colleague who did the illustrations in, in slow clothing and we're, we're putting together another book which, you know, at the moment it's got the working type, title of Simple Living Skills and it'll be a little bit along that, you know, because home economics per se has sort of disappeared from the curriculum in some ways. It's evolved into other things and... I guess it's just those those things our mothers taught us and fathers taught us, uh, you know, because my dad was great with gardening and he actually cooked all the, the, all the meals for us growing up at home, so he was very active as well. But I just think it's those what matters in life and and we, we need a few different narratives going on about living simply, living locally and how, how actually doing that benefits your well-being. You know, because when you're focused on living directly, you know, that's what it's called, living directly instead of living through social media and through other people's eyes and what they think is important. I think living directly, using your hands to do things and having your own energy um, invested, you know, it makes you value things. So that's where I'm going more, Ag. I mean, that's really my journey for next year is to... To kind of, you know, to, um, and it, it is about permaculture, but, um, you know, there's different ways of communicating it. And, and I just think, um, you know, there's the things that grandma might have taught you. And there is such a, you know, I think there's a, a 
um, granny skills is a known thing. I think for someone in South Australia who's coined that term. So, but um, you know, even not granny skills, it's even just mama skills. You know, I'm thinking about yes. my age group. So yes. I'm, 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 I'm not a grandmother yet. And I was talking to my daughter last night as we're walking, coming home. And we're, she was saying, you know, you should really talk, write a book or something about what life was like when you were growing up because you always tell people that, you know, when you were young, that was the last point that Australia lived a one-planet way of life. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what was that life like? What, what did yeah. we do? And yes. I think it's a, and you it know, was that's the kind of local. It was local and it was DIY. And it was the resourcefulness of, you know, saving the water, yeah, taking it out and watering your pot plants with it and, you know, all, just all those little simple things. And, like, it, it amazes me that often it's the simplest is the best. And I feel as if we're coming full circle on this and, um, you know, we've had the razzle-dazzle life and some people, everyone comes to as a different stage of awareness, but I kind of feel as if I've... I've arrived here realising that a simple, authentic life is is the most relaxed, you know, like mental health is such a big issue now. But when, when you just concentrate on simple things that you can manage for yourself and, and being creative, it keeps your brain active and alive as well, which, you know, there's links to longevity there and deferring. You know, with the, with the COVID world, when we are also a lot more local, and yes. forced to be and forced to be more home-based, that it, it gives us something really tangible and practical to yeah. to learn and to, to lean into, I think, you know, this yeah. re, you know regaining these skills. So, yes. Gosh, yes. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. And I look forward to your new book. I love Slow Clothing. I'm going to put all the links below um, is there anywhere in particular that you can you want me to send people to find out information about your work? Do you have a website that has all those no, interviews um, that you've been doing, your virtual um, churchill? Yes, so that's textilebeat.com. Um, and the book is often available in libraries. So, I mean, I sell it through my website, but I know there's 20 copies in Brisbane Library and... Um, you know, that's where I, I liked as the first portal call, I think, just borrow it and just have a read. But I just think it's it's people putting up their antenna and they will notice a lot all around them about other things when you change your mindset to, you know, to simple living. So And invite um, other people to come in and do it with you, I think. Yes, yes, you need to have fellow travellers because it's so easy to be distracted by all the bright and shiny things, isn't it? You need to find the authentic people who are living in the real world and and also living simply. Um, you know, Fight for Planet A, I don't know whether you saw that on the ABC, but Craig Rootcastle following War on Waste, you know. like and, and we've got lived experience of climate change now and, you know, People are dying from it and I think that the heat is starting off again this year. So we've really got to change our ways and I think it's just starting with the small things, you know, just making making small changes. That's really what I'd recommend. And there's no, there's no script. You know, we make up our own script. So I just think start looking and start listening and just start by wasting less. That's a really, really good entry too. 
living simply. So thanks, Moray. Thank you, Jane. Have a wonderful um, holiday season and I look forward to um, catching up with you again next year. Yeah, great. Okay. Bye. So that's all for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Head on over to my YouTube channel, the link's below, and then you'll be able to watch this conversation. But also make sure that you subscribe because that way you'll be notified of all new films that come out and also the release of the extended tour of Lamas Eco Village where we go into the landscape and the common spaces too. And also you'll get notified of all the new all the new interviews and conversations that come out. So thanks again for joining us. Have a great week and I'll see you next time.